a note to the hearer. Those who give careful reading to studies in the scriptures will discover the studies differ in several respects from many other religious periodicals. There is little in this publication that will appeal to the popular reader. If this magazine be read as a newspaper is read, little profit to the soul will be obtained. What we solicit from our subscribers is this. First, that before taking up any article herein, the reader will lift up his or her heart to God and earnestly ask Him for a spirit of discernment to recognize His truth and an open heart to receive it. Second, that to this end, the reader will study each article with an open Bible before him, turning to each passage quoted to see whether or not the writer proves what he says by a thus saith the Lord. And a third, that he reads slowly, critically and thoughtfully what is presented in these pages. God has said in His Word, He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28.16 And if ever there was a time when His children needed to give special heed to this admonition, it is now. The people of God are infected with the spirit of the world, the mad rush which characterizes everything around us, the awful hustle and bustle of the ungodly as they rush headlong to eternal death, has affected the members of the household of faith, and few, if any of us, are free from it. One of our most urgent needs is to be delivered from this feverish spirit, for it is rapidly sapping the spiritual vitality of many of God's people. The irreverent speed at which the Holy Scriptures are read in the average pulpit, the rate at which sacred songs are commonly sung, the unholy manner in which many rush into the presence of the Most High God and gabble off the first words that come to their lips are so many examples of this infection. And alas, the same Spirit possesses most of us when we read the Word of God and expositions of that Word. We earnestly ask our readers to make a prayerful study of the words stand, sit, wait, tarry, as they are found in Holy Writ. The title of this magazine implies that it is designed not for lazy people, or for those who are so busily occupied with the things of this world that they have no time, in reality no heart, for the things of God. No, it is published for the benefit of those who are or who wish to become students of Scripture. The articles herein call for study, thoughtful perusal, prolonged meditation. Finally, let not this magazine become a substitute for your own daily study of God's Word. Rather, let it be an incentive for further search on your part to discover the priceless treasures hidden therein. This is from the life of Arthur W. Pink by I. H. Murray, pages 23 and 24. Turning now to October 
1932 Studies in the Scriptures Search the Scriptures John 5.39 Editor Arthur W. Pink 1886-1952 The nine studies and the contents are The Faith of Christ The Epistle to the Hebrews The Life of David Feeble Faith Assurance the one thing needful, wise counsel, resisting the devil, and are we saved by loving? Study number one, the faith of Christ. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. Yes, so great is this mystery that when faith attempts to view it, our eyes are dazzled only as we contemplate it through the very words of Holy Writ shall we be preserved from the blindness which carnal speculation inevitably imparts. The Word became flesh. The second person in the Holy Trinity took upon him the form of a servant. The Eternal Son took holy humanity into union with himself. Though that humanity was not in itself a person, though it never had a separate existence, yet was it endowed with all the elements and qualities of a human personality. Christ was not only God, but man, having a human spirit and soul and body. As such, Christ lived the life of a perfect man. Speaking by the spirit of prophecy, he declared, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Psalm 16, 8 In becoming flesh, our blessed Lord took upon him a dependent nature, and therefore did he for thirty-three years live a life of faith upon his heavenly Father. The actings of that faith in all its diversified phases may be clearly seen, portrayed to our wondering view in those psalms which, beyond all gainsaying, contain the experiences of Christ in the days of his flesh. There is not a grace or fruit of the Spirit possessed by his people in measure, which the Lord did not possess without measure. And these, it must be borne in mind, were active graces, drawn out and called into continual exercise by the same Holy Spirit who had communicated them. J.C. Philpott 1862 said, Faith in all its actings, hope in all its anchorings, love in all its flowings, patience in all its endurings, humility in all its submittings, prayer in all its supplicatings, praise in all its adorings, obedience in all its yieldings, holiness in all its flame, and worship 
in all its fervor. All, all these graces and fruits of the Holy Spirit may be seen shining forth as with beams of heavenly light in the personal experience of our blessed Lord in those psalms in which he speaks. They were, as it were, framed for him by the Holy Spirit before he came into a time state, that they might be not only prophetical of his sufferings for the benefit of his church, but be the spiritual utterance of his own holy soul in the days of his flesh. Unquote. As the sponsor and surety of God's elect, the Lord Jesus entered the place of their responsibility to be the kinsman redeemer of his people really and truly of one. Hebrews 2.11 With the many sons he was to bring to glory in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. Hebrews 2.17 And thus to be brought into that condition wherein he should trust in God and act in that dependency upon him which the nature of man whilst exposed to troubles does indispensably require. He who was rich for our sakes became poor. He who had brought into existence the universe by the fiat of his will now became subject to the commandments of the Father. He who upholdeth all things by the word of his power entered the place of complete dependency and cried to the strong for strength. Not only in the Psalms, but in the prophets too has the Holy Spirit given us to hear some of the holy breathings of him who became man, completely dependent upon God. Most blessedly is this brought before us in Isaiah 50. There we find the Mediator saying, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning, he waketh mine ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. The Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Verses 4, 5, and 7. What light this casts upon the lowly place which the Creator of angels had taken! How blessedly it makes known to us His amazing condescension! How perfectly He conducted Himself as the Father's servant! Isaiah 42.1 Well could he say, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Matthew 11.29 From the very commencement of his earthly life, the Lord Jesus lived by faith. Marvelously is this revealed to us in the 22nd Psalm. There we behold the Savior in the midst of his dying agonies, doubtless tempted by Satan to give way to unbelief and despair, for it was there he was permitted to fully vent his enmity against the woman's seed, 
Genesis 3.15 and Luke 22.53. Yet vain were the enemy's attacks. There we hear our blessed Redeemer declaring, But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Verses 9 and 10. How this brings out his uniqueness. In his faith, as in everything else, he has the preeminence. Colossians 1.18 It was not only in manhood or childhood, but from very earliest infancy, that the man Christ Jesus drew his support from the triune God. Throughout his life, the Lord Jesus lived by faith. Many are the proofs of this, but we can here barely mention a few of them. His prayer life exemplifies the fact. He was engaged in prayer while being baptized. Luke 3.21 He continued all night in prayer to God, Luke 6.12, before selecting the twelve apostles. It was as he prayed that the fashion of his countenance was altered, Luke 9.29, and he was transfigured on the holy mount. His prayers expressed his dependence upon and felt need of the Father. His victory over Satan illustrated the same fact. By the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer, he declared, and then added, Hold up my goings in thy paths. Psalm 17, 4 and 5. A. Saphir said, he ever acted in filial dependence upon the Father and in filial reception out of the Father's fullness. Unquote. Christ was never actuated by what is called common sense, influenced by public opinion or governed by worldly policy and prudence. Instead, he was always beholding him who is invisible walking with God and doing His will. I am not alone. He that sent me is with me. John eight sixteen and 29 The captain of our salvation was exposed to great difficulties, anxiety of mind, dangers and troubles, typed out by the great sufferings of David before he came to the kingdom. But in all his perplexities, the Lord Jesus ever betook himself unto the protection of God. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. Psalm 16.1 Such was his plea. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he, shall live by me. John 6.57 when he suffered, he threatened not, but by faith committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. 1 Peter 2.23 On the cross, the suffering Savior's faith was active. Wondrously, 
is thus brought out in Isaiah 50, verses 8 and 9. He is near that justifieth me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? The ineffably holy one had been made the sin-bearer. Jehovah had laid on Christ the iniquity of all his people. Isaiah 53, 6. Though personally sinless, all the sins of God's elect were imputed to Christ, who his own self bare our sins in his own body to the tree. 1 Peter 2.24 Yet even while enduring the curse and the wrath of God was hard upon him, our surety had implicit faith that he would be exonerated. He is near that justifieth me. In death itself, the Savior fully trusted God. His last act was one of faith. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Luke 23:46. My flesh shall rest in hope, literally, dwells in confident sureness. For thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to seek corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, resurrection life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, 9-11 Perhaps the fear of lowering the character of our blessed Lord has restrained many from writing on this precious theme. But none should be afraid to go as far as Scripture goes. As we have seen, Holy Writ depicts the life of Christ as giving us the only perfect and all-sighted embodiment of faith. Nor was his faith a secret or hidden thing. He made open profession of it. His enemies acknowledged he trusted in God. Matthew 27:43. Oh, for more conformity to his image. Christ is not only the Christian's righteousness and peace, but as well the model and strength of his life. Arthur Pink Study number two. The Epistle to the Hebrews The Faith of Enoch Hebrews 11, 5 and 6 The Apostle makes it his principal design in this chapter to convince the Hebrews of the nature, importance, and efficacy of saving faith. In the execution of his design, he first described the essential actings of faith, verse 1, and then in all that follows, he treats of the effects, fruits, and achievements of faith. It is blessed to behold how that once more his appeal was to the Holy Scriptures, not by abstract arguments, still less by bare assertions would he persuade them, but instead by setting forth some of the many examples and proofs which the sacred records furnished. Having reminded them of what the faith obedience of Abel procured, namely the obtaining of a witness from God that he was righteous, 
The Apostle cites the case of Enoch, who exemplifies another aspect and consequent of faith. The order observed by the Holy Spirit in Hebrews 11 is not the historical one. A careful reading of its contents will make this clear. For example, reference is made in verse 9 to Isaac and Jacob before attention is directed to Sarah in verse 11. The falling down of Jericho's walls, verse 30, is mentioned before the faith of Rahab, verse 31. In verse 32, Gideon is mentioned before Barak, Samson before Jephthah, and David before Samuel. Thus it is evident that we are to search for something deeper, Since the chronological order is departed from again and again, must there not be a spiritual significance to the way in which the Old Testament saints are here referred to? Without a doubt, such must be the case. The reason for this is not far to see. It is the experimental order which is followed in this chapter. If the Lord permits, This will become plainer and plainer as we proceed from verse to verse. That which the three examples supplied in verses 4 to 7 set before us is an outline of the life of faith. Abel is mentioned first, not because he was born before Enoch and Noah, but because what is recorded of him in Genesis 4 illustrated and demonstrated where the life of faith begins. In like manner, Enoch is referred to next not because he is mentioned before Noah in the book of Genesis, but because what was found in him, or rather what divine grace had wrought in him, must precede that which was typified by the builder of the ark. Each of these three men adumbrated a distinct feature or aspect of the life of faith, and the order concerning them is inviolable. Another before us has characterized them thus. In Abel we see faith's worship. In Enoch, faith's walk. In Noah, faith's witness. This, we believe, is an accurate and helpful way of stating it. And the more it be pondered, the more its beauty and blessedness should be perceived. But man ever reverses God's order, and never was this fact more plainly evident to the anointed eye than in these degenerate times in which our lot is cast. Witnessing and working, service, is what are so much emphasized today. Yet, dear hearer, Hebrews 11 does not begin with the example of Noah. No, indeed. Noah was preceded by Enoch, and for this reason, there can be no divinely acceptable witness or work unless and until there is a walking with God. Enoch's walk with God must come before any service which is pleasing to him. Alas, that this is so much lost sight of now. Alas, that so generally... As soon as a young person makes profession of being a Christian, he or she is pushed into some form of Christian activity. 
open air speaking, personal work, teaching, a Sunday school class. When God's word so plainly says, not a novice margin, one newly come to the faith, lest being lifted up with pride, which almost always proves to be the case, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. 1 Timothy 3.6 Oh, how much we miss and lose through failing to give close heed to the order of God's words. Frequently have we emphasized this fact in these pages, yet not too frequently. God is a God of order, and the moment we depart from His arrangements, confusion with all its attendant evils at once ensues. We cannot pay too strict attention to the order in which things are presented to us in Holy Writ, for only as we do so are we in the position to learn some of its most salutary lessons and admire its heavenly wisdom. Such is the case here. Enoch's walk of faith must precede Noah's witnessing by faith, and this, in turn, must be preceded by Abel's worship of faith. There must be that setting aside of our own preferences and ways, that bowing to God's will, that submitting to His appointments, that obedience to His requirements, before there can be any real walking with Him. Obedience to Him then, walking with Him, then witnessing for Him, is heaven's unchanging order. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God, Verse 5. The case of Abel shows us where the life of faith begins. The example of Enoch teaches us of what the life of faith consists. Now, just as we had to refer to Genesis 4 to understand Hebrews 11.4, so we have to turn back to Genesis 5 for its light to be thrown upon our present verse. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Genesis 5.24 Here we have set forth, in the form of a brief summary, the new life of the believer. To walk with God. Previously, Enoch had walked according to the course of this world. Ephesians 2.2 Had gone his own way. Isaiah 53.6 of self-pleasing and unconcerned about the future, had thought only of the present. But now he had been reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 For can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3.3 3. The term walk signifies a voluntary act, a steady advance, a progress in spiritual things. To walk with God imports a life surrendered to God, a life controlled by God, a life lived for God. 
It is to that our present verse has reference. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. It should be obvious to any spirit-taught heart that we need to look beneath the surface here if we are to discover the spiritual principle of the verse and seek grace to apply it to ourselves. As a mere historical statement, it is doubtless a very interesting one, yet as such it imparts no strength to my needy soul. The bare fact that a man who walked this earth thousands of years ago escaped death may astonish, but it supplies no practical help. What we wish to press upon the hearer is the need for asking each portion of Scripture he reads the question, What is there here? What practical lesson to help me while I am left on earth? Nor is this always discovered in a moment. Prayer, patience, meditation are required. As we endeavor to study our verse with the object of ascertaining its practical meaning and message for us today, the first thing the thoughtful ponderer will notice is the repetition of the word translated. This occurring no less than three times in one verse is evidently the key word. According to its etymology, translated signifies to carry across, to bear up, to remove, to change from one place to another. This at once brings to mind if the word of Christ be dwelling in us richly, that verse, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son? Colossians 1.3 This refers to the grand fact of the Christian's present standing and state before God. He has passed from death unto life. John 5.24 now it is the Christian's privilege and duty to live in the power of this fact and have it made good in his actual case and experience. And this will be so just in proportion as he is enabled to live and walk by faith. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. The word see here has the force of taste or experience. Enoch was not to be overcome by death. But let us not limit our thoughts unto physical death. Just as Enoch's translation from earth to heaven has a deeper meaning than the natural, so that he should not see death signifies more than an escape from the grave. Death is the wages of sin, the curse of the broken law. We are living in a world which is under God's righteous curse, and death is plainly stamped across everything in it. But when faith is in exercise, the soul is lifted above this scene and its 
favored possessor is enabled to walk in newness of life. As we saw when pondering the opening verse, it is the nature of faith to bring near things future and to obtain proof and enjoyment of what is invisible to natural sight. Just so far as we walk by faith is the heart translated, raised above this poor world, and then it is we experience the power of his Christ's resurrection. Philippians 3.10 Let us now link verses 4 and 5 together, observing their doctrinal force. When a sinner, by surrender to God, and faith in the sacrifice of Christ is pronounced righteous by the judge of all, he is made an heir of eternal life, and sin and death can no more have dominion over him, that is, no longer have any legal claim upon him. It is this which is illustrated here. The very next saint who is mentioned after Abel was taken to heaven without dying, thereby demonstrating that the power of death over the Christian has been annulled. First, a sinner saved through the blood of the Lamb, Abel. Then, a saved sinner removed from earth to heaven and nothing between. How inexpressibly blessed! Words fail us, and we can but bow in silent wonderment and worship. How great is God's salvation! Now that which is a fact of Christian doctrine needs to become a fact of Christian experience. We need to enjoy the good, the power, the blessedness of it in our souls day by day. And this can only be as a supernatural faith is an exercise. A bare knowledge of doctrine is practically worthless unless the heart earnestly seeks from God a practical outworking of it. It is one thing to believe that I have judicially passed from death unto life. It is quite another to live practically in the realm of life. But that is exactly what a life of faith is. It is a being lifted above the things which are seen and a being occupied with those things which are unseen. It is for the affections to be no longer set on things on the earth, but to have them fixed on things in heaven. Perhaps the hearer is inclined to say, the ideal you set before us is indeed beautiful, but it is impossible for flesh and blood to attain unto it. Quite true, dear friend, we fully grant it of himself, the Christian can no more live practically upon resurrection ground than Enoch could transport himself to heaven. But observe carefully the very next words in our wonderful text. Because God had translated him. Again, we beg you not to carnalize these words and see in them only a reference to his bodily removal to heaven or to see in them Nothing more than a type and pledge of the rapture, the fulfillment of 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. That is the prophetical significance. But there is a spiritual meaning and 
practical application also. And this is what we so much desire to make clear unto each spiritual hearer. Enoch's translation to heaven was a miracle. And that which is spiritually symbolized is a supernatural experience. The whole Christian life from start to finish is a supernatural thing. The new birth is a miracle of grace. For one who is dead in trespasses and sins can no more regenerate himself than he can create a world. A spiritual repentance and spiritual faith are imparted by the operation of God. Colossians 2.12 For a fallen creature can no more originate them than he could give himself being. To have the heart divorced from the world, to be brought to hate the things we once loved, and to now love the things we once hated, is the alone fruitage of the almighty work of the Holy Spirit. And for the heart to function in the realm of resurrection life while its possessor is left in a scene of death can only be made possible and become actual as the supernatural grace of God sustains and calls into exercise a supernatural faith. Only God can daily wean our hearts from the things of this world of death and bring us into real communion with the Prince of Life. A word of caution here. Let us be on our guard against fatalistically folding our arms and saying, God has not ordained that I should live the translated life. True, God is sovereign and distributes his favors as he pleases. True, he grants more grace to some of his own people than to others of them. Yet it is also written that ye have not because ye ask not. James 4.2 Moreover, observe well the next words in our text. Before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Ah, does not that explain why our faith is so feeble? And why the things of earth forge such heavy change about our hearts? God is not likely to strengthen and increase our faith while we are so largely indifferent to His pleasure. There must first be the daily, diligent, prayerful striving to please Him in all things. This is absolutely essential if we are to enter into the experience of the translated life. Let us seek to anticipate a possible objection. Some may be saying, the translated life, the continuous exercise of faith which frees the heart from the grave clothes of this world, is so exceedingly difficult these days. Then let us remind you of the times in which Enoch lived. It was just before the flood, and probably conditions then were far worse than they are now. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and 
to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude 14.15 It must be remembered that those words had an historical force as well as a prophetical. Thus, a life of pleasing God, of walking with Him, of the heart being lifted above the world, was no easier then than now. Yet divine grace made this actual in Enoch, and that grace is as potent today as it was then. Oftentimes, it is helpful to reverse the clauses of a verse so as to perceive more clearly their relation. In order to illustrate this, and because we are so anxious for the hearer to lay hold of the vitally important teaching of Hebrews 11.5, we will treat it accordingly. Before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Do I? Do you? That is a most timely inquiry. If we are not pleasing God, then the more knowledge we have of His truth, the worse for us. That servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Luke 12.47 God will not be mocked. Fair words and reverent postures cannot deceive him. It is not how much light do I have, but how far am I in complete subjection to the Lord. God had translated him. Of course he did. God always honors those who honor him. But let us remember that that same verse adds, And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 1 Samuel 2.30 God is too holy to encourage self-pleasing and put a premium upon self-indulgence. While we gratify the flesh, the blessing of the Spirit will be withheld. While our hearts are so much occupied with the concerns of earth, He will not make the things of heaven real and efficacious to us. O oh, my hearer, if God be not working mightily in your life and mine, showing himself strong on our behalf, Second Chronicles 16.9, then something is seriously wrong with us. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Remember what was before us in the preceding article. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans 10.17 Faith always presupposes a divine revelation. Faith must have a foundation to rest upon, and that foundation must be the word of him that cannot lie. God had spoken, and Enoch believed. But what a testing of faith! God declared that Enoch should be removed from earth to heaven without passing through the portals of the grave. One, two, three hundred years passed. 
But Enoch believed God, and before the fourth century was completed, his promise was fulfilled. That he should not see death was the reward of his pleasing God. And he does not change. Where there is a genuine pleasing of him, a real walking with him, he elevates the heart above this scene into the realm of life, light, and liberty. Ere passing on to the next verse, let us enumerate other points of interest and value contained in this one, though we can no more than barely mention them. First, God is not tied to the order of nature. Genesis 3.19 was set aside in the cases of Enoch and Elijah. Second, God puts great outward providential differences between those equally accepted by him. He did so between Abel and Enoch. Third, to exhibit the world's enmity, God suffered Abel to be martyred. To comfort his people, God preserved Enoch. Fourth, what God did for Enoch, he can and will yet do for a whole generation of his saints. 1 Corinthians 15.51 Fifth, there is a future life for believers. The removal of Enoch to heaven plainly intimated this. Sixth, the body is partaker with the soul in life eternal. The corporal translation of Enoch showed this. Seventh, the godliest do not always live the longest. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.